take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 139 today. Psalm 139. Let me mention that the video you saw a minute ago is not a song we will be singing over the next few weeks. Although, it's a pretty catchy tune. What you saw is a an introduction to this sermon and the ending question in that video was, who are you? Throughout the video, they said over and over again, I am, and they gave quotes about who we are in Christ. And then the ending was, who are you? And over the next few weeks and the week we started last week, that's the question we're trying to get answered, is who are you? Who am I? Who is it that God has called us to be? Last week we talked about that sometimes the relationships in our lives can steal our identity. We talked about the fact that the relationships that you and I have have this potential to steal the identity we have in Christ. Next week we're going to talk about that success can steal that or the attempt to achieve success. And the week after that we're going to talk about the past. But today we're going to talk about an object in our lives that can do major damage to our identity in Christ. And it is an object that most of us have in our house. I would say that all of us have one of these in our houses. It's just simply a mirror. Now here's the question. When you look into a mirror, what do you see? When you look into the mirror at your house, when you walk into the restroom, or you look at yourself as you're leaving each day, what do you see? Mirrors tell us a lot about ourselves. There are some mirrors that make us see real close up. I don't like those a whole lot. There are some that are different shades. There are even at an amusement park, some house of mirrors. Anybody ever been there? I like the one that makes me look tall and skinny. How about you? They make you look tall and skinny or short and not so skinny. But mirrors are an amazing thing because the reaction is, or the reality is, that whatever we see in the mirror is who we are. Now what we're going to talk about today is that our culture will try to tell us that what we see in the mirror may not be good enough, and what God intends for us to see is that whatever's in the mirror is created by Him and is good enough. We live in a culture that is obsessed with looks. Absolutely obsessed with looks. If you don't believe it, just turn on your television and try to find a night of the week where there is not a show on about transforming somebody from looking one way to looking another. Extreme makeover. The swan. I want a famous face. Dr. 90210. All about people trying to look like somebody they're not. Now some of you may look in the mirror and you may, in the words of a great song by a guy named Mac Davis, may think, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Now maybe that's you. But most of us are not that way. Most of us look in the mirror and we have some insecurities. 
some things that make us think, I wish that were different. We look in the mirror and we say, I wish I could change this or I could change that. As we grow older and our waistlines expand, as we grow older and our hair decides it wants to be a different color, as we grow older and things we used to not notice suddenly become larger and noticeable. Have you ever noticed that when you have something on your face, it's considered a blemish? When a model has it, it's a beauty mark. Right? We live in this culture that tells us that what we look like ought to matter. And we we have this idea that that everybody has to be perfect. I was watching a show the other night. Or not the other night. It was a little while back. I was flipping through the channels. And I caught this guy talking about, you know, just how things catch your ears. And I turned past the channel and came back. And it was a guy named Luke who I would come to discover was a guy that was obsessed with working out and getting the perfect body. And he could get everything like he liked it on his body except his calves. And so Luke went in and had a calf implant. It was a calf implant. Now, he went back to the gym and he was trying to get people at the gym to notice how good his calf implants looked, and everybody just thought they looked Ridiculous. This is what I thought. How sad it is that he thinks the thing that will complete him, I don't know what they put in implants and calves, but whatever it is, something inserted into his body to make him something he's not. Calf implants. Here's the problem. We don't know what normal is anymore. There's a book written by a lady named Michelle Graham that talks about Uh, The title of the book is I Want to Be Her, and she talks about this girl that moved into her neighborhood in 1959 that had long blonde hair and had this anatomically correct, perfect figure, and the girl's name was Barbie. Well, some scientists took Barbie and figured out some things about her. If you were to take Barbie, and this is considered normal by some people, and to kind of put her into a normal human being, you would find out that her legs would mean that she was about seven feet tall. And in order to get the figure she has, she would be missing four ribs and most of her internal organs. And yet Barbie is a $1.5 billion with a B dollar industry. And all that sounds funny until you realize the effect it has on us. A recent survey showed that 70% of women felt frustrated, upset, and less of a person after looking at three minutes of a fashion magazine. I think tonight's the Oscars. I've kind of lost track. I know they didn't know if they were going to happen or if they would. I don't ever see any of the movies that are up, so I I think it's tonight. And tonight, as they're going into the Oscars, one of the things that's going to happen is they're going to have these people outside and as the celebrities walk in everybody wants to know who you're wearing right and they're going to walk out onto that carpet and they are going to look fabulous they're going to have these designer dresses what we don't understand is most of them are getting ready now with a team of cosmetics and hair and designers and that it will take them hours to look like that and then tomorrow there'll be some channel that'll tell you how to get that look in 15 minutes 
It's not going to happen. We spend $20 billion in cosmetics, $74 billion every year in diet foods. 7.4 million Americans will get cosmetic surgery. Well, what does it all mean? In the words of one pastor, it means we're getting mugged by the mirror. We're buying a lie that equates looking a certain way with being happy, contented, and showered with unfailing love. Here's how it plays out, he says. If I'm attractive enough to other people, I'll be accepted and admired. I will be respected, significant, and loved. I will be worthwhile. I will be enough. And once that happens, all my problems will be resolved. My life will fall into place. Members of the opposite sex will find me irresistible. Employers will want to hire me. Friends will want to be with me. Friends will want to be me. And as a result, we lose what God intends for us to be. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it just lays out who we are in Christ and who God intends for us to be. And it's a psalm of David. And we don't know exactly what the the occasion of David writing this psalm is, but one of the things that I like to think is it may have been a day when David was having a particularly bad hair day. Ever have one of those days you wake up and nothing seems to be going the direction it ought to be going? Whether it's your hair, your face, or whatever. Some of you say, I have that day every day. That's all right. And it's one of those days that I think he just needed the reassurance from God that he was who God told him he was. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at four facts out of Psalm 139 that is true about each and every one of us in this room. And then I want to take that and say, here's how we stop believing what the world tells us about the way we look. And we start living for God, accepting who we are. And the first truth that we need to understand is that you are known. Now, all these are going to work together, and it's important to kind of build upon one another. But we need to understand that you are known. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hid me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. Here is a fact that you need to know, is that God knows absolutely everything about you. He knows every thought you have. He knows every thought you're going to have. I remember when I was a teenager, I used to just go through this. And sometimes I would get lost in thought. I was a daydreamer. Still am a little bit. And I would just think to myself, you know, it is amazing that God knows what I'm going to think before I think it. And God, you knew that I was going to think about the fact that you know what I'm going to think about before I think it. And God, you knew that I was going to think about the fact that you were going to think about the fact that you know that I know what I'm going to think before you know what I'm getting at. If you you follow that too far, it'll weird you out. Now, that's a real theological term there, but it's true. Now, what happens is God is saying that he knows everything about us. Here's the thing. He knows our thoughts, our prayers, our hopes, our dreams, our problems, our good things, our bad things, our motives. He knows everything. And I know I'm crackling. He knows that, too. 
God knows it all. And so the question that you have to answer in your heart and your mind is, are you okay with God knowing everything? One of the things that happened in the Garden of Eden is Adam and Eve were there. And as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, as they were, they were enjoying all that God had to offer them, as they were living through all God had pleasure for them, and as Satan came along and tried to convince them to do something that was outside of what God intended, what is interesting about that is when they finally gave in and they finally understood that they had taken the fruit that God had forbid them to take, that when they got into that point and when they took the fruit, then suddenly they were ashamed of who they were. And they hid. And one of the things that can happen is when we know that God knows us, when we know that God knows everything about us, it is easy for us to say that I need to hide. I mean, some of you in this room right now wouldn't want me knowing everything about you. You wouldn't want me knowing everything about you. Every thought you had, every good moments you've had, that you might not mind that, but those moments when you may don't have pure motives or you don't tell the complete truth, you wouldn't want me to know that. But look what Psalm 139 says about God. You've searched me and you know me. The word know there in the original language means an intimate, deep, full knowledge. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You know when I get up. You know when I go to bed. You know when I'm thinking from a distance. You know when I leave. You know when I go to sleep. You're familiar with everything I do. Before I can even get a word on my tongue, you know it, Lord. You're before me. You're behind me. You have laid your hand upon me. Now, it's interesting. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But the point there is that he has intimate knowledge of everything about us. And in spite of that, David welcomes God's knowledge. Here's the thing that amazes me, and I know that on your handout today it's just very basic, but you can write this in if you want somewhere. Here's the thing that amazes me about God. Is the man or the person or the being, God, who knows me best, loves me most. And the thing is, oftentimes I think that if I could hide some things from God, He would love me more. But that doesn't, in the way it works. God knows me. Here's the second thing. Not only are you known, the second thing is you are pursued. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we just did six weeks on the book of Jonah. And the title of that series was God in Pursuit. And what it meant and what we talked about is that God is constantly pursuing us. Verse 7 through 12 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God knows us intimately. He knows everything about us. And even in the midst of that, even in knowing fully about us, God constantly seeks us out. God pursues us with an everlasting love. God chases us down like the hound of heaven going after us, trying to bring us back to Him. 
He pursues us. Listen to some of the ways the Scripture describes how God feels about us. It says that we are the apple of His eye, the object of His affection. We are dearly loved, that we are beloved, that we are His chosen, that nothing can separate us from His love, and that we are His children. Scripture teaches that not only in Psalm 139 do we see that God knows us, but we see in Psalm 139 that God still pursues us. Here's why that's important. God cares enough about you and thinks enough about you individually that He goes after you. That He runs after you. Here's the third thing. Not only are you known, not only are you pursued, the third thing is you are unique. It says, and what we read a little bit earlier, verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I want to tell you that I mentioned the sonogram pictures earlier. Also, while we were uh, planning on Eli and Luke coming, while we were in those months when Susan was was uh, expecting and we were walking through that, one of the things that we would do is there was a show that was on TV that we taped called In the Womb. And we would watch whatever month that we were in the process of going through, and we would watch it all the time, trying to figure out what's happening or what's going on inside of Susan's body right now as our babies are growing. And it is amazing to see all that is formed in the midst of that. Verse 14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You created me. We are unique. The word there that is said for you, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, is a word that literally can be translated that we are God's masterpieces. We are the pinnacle of creation. We are the highest of all that He has done. And it is amazing to me to look at all the animals that have been created, to see the mountains and the sun and the moon and all that is happening, and to think that in the midst of all of that, God says that His highest form of creation, His masterpiece, His highest accomplishment is us. We're it. After that show, In the Womb came out, they came out with another show called In the Womb Multiples. And they showed multiples inside the womb on all of these things. And one of the things they talked about was just fascinating to me is that inside the womb, these multiples, even though they could be identical twins, have differences. Now, I know that that's kind of an oxymoron, identical twins having differences, but now follow me for just a minute. I'm not a biologist, but this is what they said. They said in the womb that our bodies realize we need a certain amount of blood in a certain part of our body. So even as fetuses, as embryos, we begin to put blood flow to the areas that need it when there's a lack of blood flow. And as a result, the first thing that we sacrifice is our index fingers. 
That's the farthest part from our body. And so that is the place that gets the least blood flows. Now, what happens when we sacrifice blood is that in the womb, as we make that determination on our own, that it forms distinctive patterns along with our fingerprints for every person. And that identical twins in the same womb can have different patterns. Now, I can't see it on my finger, and you can't either, so don't try looking. Some of you immediately went, you can't see it. But the point is that every person that has ever lived is unique. There is no one else like you. Now, I'm glad about that. All right. Thank you, Alan. I don't know if that was because you're glad there's not another one like me or like you. I don't. But I appreciate the amen. There's nobody like us. And here's the thing. It doesn't say we're just unique and that we're God's masterpiece. It talks about the fact that God has made us in a way that is amazing. I don't know whether you know this or not, but while you're sitting here right now, hundreds of millions of your cells will die. By the time I finish this sermon, hundreds of millions of your cells will die. And throughout the day, you will lose five pounds of skin cells. I didn't say you're going to lose five pounds. You're going to lose five pounds of skin cells. Well, here's the thing. Well, why don't we just waste away? Because while those hundreds of millions of cells are dying and skin is literally sloughing off your body, at the same time, those cells within are being regenerated and the skin is being reformed. Your skin completely redoes itself every seven years. On a regular basis, the blood in your body reforms itself. The human body is an amazing, amazing creation. And here's the thing. When we look in the mirror and we somehow think that what we see is less than good, that is less than perfect, what we are saying is that what God has created is not good enough. We are unique. Here's the fourth thing, and just as important, is that you're needed. Verse 15 says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I'm awake, I am still with you. What he says in the process there is that God has a plan and a purpose for each and every individual life in this room. For each and every individual life on this planet, God has a plan and a purpose. Here's the thing. When you begin to put all of this together, that God knows us completely, that in spite of all the problems that we have, God still pursues us because He loves us with an unbelievable, undeserved love. And we understand that not only that, that He has created each of us uniquely in a 
magnificent way to glorify Him, to be who He called us to be, and that our physical appearance is a product of His creation. And then you patch that with the fact that each and every person is needed here because of a purpose that God has put together. Then you have what I like to call an understanding of the sanctity of life. Now, in the sanctity of life, we often talk about that with abortion or euthanasia. But the truth is, all the sanctity of life really means is that we value each and every life that God has put on this planet. And when you understand in yourself that God created me specifically the way that I am, God intends for me to to do what He called me to do, you understand the value that is there. You see, that's why it bothers me when I try to think of myself trying to look like or act like or be like somebody I see in television or on the ra- and listen to on the radio or see in the newspaper. And I'll be honest with you, there are times when it is difficult not to compare. Amen? There are times. About once a year, I get a craze to start working out. And it lasts at least two or three weeks. And one of these particular craze moments, I was working out at a place that had mirrors. And I, this was when I had done really well. I had gone about six weeks. And I could swear that I could see myself getting stronger in the mirror. More muscular in the mirror. Until the guy sat down next to me that obviously works out every day for the entirety of his life. And I began to compare. And I began to get discouraged. And it's easy. It's easy to see somebody doing great things and say to myself, you know what, I just wish God would let me do things like Him. It's easy sometimes to focus on your life and the value that you see in it and see others and try to say, I wish I could do that. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, how in the world could God ever use me? But Scripture teaches us over and over and over again that God intends to use us just as we are. and That He intends to use us for His glory. Let me give you four things that you can do to reclaim your biblical identity when it comes to your appearance. And some of these aren't going to have anything to do with your appearance. I'm not going to give you any makeup tips. Sorry. Number one, believe what God says. Believe what God says. Most of us in this room have read Psalm 139, have Heard somebody read it to us before. Most of us know that the Scripture teaches that we are complete in Him, that we don't have to worry about all that stuff. But in the life that we live, we continually fall back into trying to believe what they say and not what He says. Romans 12:2 tells us that we need to reform our mind. The truth is that Scripture teaches that it's kind of like we need to strip away everything that was in the worldly mindset that we have and replace that with the mindset of God and what He thinks about us. Somebody compared it to stripping wallpaper. We just uh, bought a house. Most of you know that. We're moving in yesterday and tomorrow and some today. Tomorrow night we'll be in our new house and there were several things that when we moved into the house that with our decorating desires and likes that were just different than what we would have done. And one of those was in a couple of bathrooms with some wallpaper. 
And so we had to have the wallpaper stripped, and we thought we might try to do that ourselves at first. At first is the key word there, right? Actually, I never really started to attempt because Susan started to attempt and said, yeah, we're not going to do that. So we hired somebody, and they came over, and it was amazing to see them just strip the wallpaper and just pull it off. But you pull off the wallpaper, and you put a coat of paint on it, and it looks completely different. Scripture says that our minds are kind of wallpapered, if you will, with the world. And we need to begin to strip it off and to replace it with the things of God. For some of you in this room who have an image of yourself that you look in the mirror every day and you think, how in the world could God use me? I wish I were somebody else. I wish I looked differently. When you leaf through those magazines, you think, how can I be like that? And you start to live your life for an image that doesn't even exist. What you need to do is on a constant basis, you need to come back to Psalm 139 and you just need to recite, Lord, I thank you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, I thank you that I am your masterpiece, that I am the pinnacle of your creation. Now listen to me. I'm not suggesting that just by speaking those words, those words and somehow become power in the air. I know that that's out there some. What I'm saying is as you're reciting that, you're beginning to believe it, God works it into your life and it is God's truth working through you, changing how you feel about yourself. You need to believe what God says. In Philippians, it talks about that we need to think on what is true, what is honorable, what is right. And it's almost like you can be um, a, a sorter, if you will. You ever seen one of those coin sorters? You pour all the money in and it sorts it out and counts it or it sorts it out so you can stack it. And it just, whatever comes in, it sorts it to the right area. And for some of us, we need to become good sorters. And when an image or a thought comes into our mind, we need to be able to say, is that true? Is that honorable? Is that right? No, then it goes away. When I looked at that magazine and I saw that image and thought, boy, I wish I just looked like that. Is that true? Is that honorable? Is that right? No, it needs to go away. When I heard what somebody said about me and I began to believe it and made them believe that it's true about what I look like or how I feel or how I act. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it right? No, then it gets discarded. First thing we need is believe what God says. The second thing we need to do is we need to see what God sees. Now, first of all, we need to see what God sees in us. And that means that we need to see these things that it talks about in Scripture, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that, that my frame has not been hidden from me, that He wove me together, that I am His masterpiece worked together in the womb, and that He is constantly working on me. But it also means that in our lives, we need to begin to look past the exterior. In 2 Samuel fourteen twenty-five, it tells us the story of Absalom. And this is the quote it says about Absalom. It says that no one in Israel was as handsome as Absalom. But if you read the rest of the story, you find out he was an evil person. And we need to remember that just as when God chose David and he said to his prophet Samuel, I do not look at the outward appearance, but I search the heart of man. We need to begin to look past the outward appearance and look into the inside of others as well as ourselves. We need to become worried, not about what we're wearing outside, but what we're wearing inside. 
As Colossians 3 talks about that we're dressed with compassion and kindness and humility and a quiet strength and with discipline. We need to see what God sees. The third thing is we need to begin to love who God loves. We need to get to focus outward. Scripture teaches us that we are to love God and to love others. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I have found in my life is when I am serving and working and loving other people, when I am outward focused, I spend a lot less time worrying about myself. There are days when I am so anxious to get into the day, so excited about getting into the day, I'll walk out of the house and realize I have not combed my hair. Maybe that doesn't happen to you. I'm sure some of you it never happens, but it occasionally happens for me. And you know what it usually is? It's when I've got things I'm really excited about doing for the glory of God. We need to be outwardly focused, focusing on others. Now, I will tell you that part of what that means in loving who God loves is not just to focus on other people and to focus on loving God. Scripture teaches us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means that you have to have a healthy appreciation of who you are in God. Listen, if God can love me and knows things about me I don't even know, then I ought to be able to love myself a little bit as well. Here's the last thing. If you're going to regain your identity and be who God calls you to be, not only are you going to have to see or believe what God says and see how God sees, love who God loves, but you're going to have to reflect who God is. David talks about in the rest of this psalm how that the world is wicked around us and that he wished God would do something about the wicked. And God seems to not answer in the silence and the fact that God is going to do that through people like David. And that God has called us to reflect who he is. Somebody mentioned to me the other day, one of the great things about understanding what reflection is all about is to think about the moon. You know the moon has no light in itself, right? There's nobody turning the light switch on and off every night. So how does the moon light up? It reflects the sun, right? Now this week we had a little event with the moon, right? I didn't see it, but I trust somebody. How many of you saw the lunar eclipse? Now why do we have a lunar eclipse? Anybody know? The earth gets in the way, right? The world gets in the way. Here's what God calls us to do. He calls us to reflect who He is. That we are to be a reflection of His light to those around us. But here's the problem. Sometimes the world gets in the way. And it does that through telling us we ought to be somebody different than we are. It tells us that we ought to be something different than we are. It tells us we ought to act differently than we act. It tells us we ought to look differently than we look. When God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, I love you, I pursue you, I want you to be a part of my plan, I am intimately involved in the details of your life, you are my masterpiece, you are uniquely created, and I have a purpose for you that I don't have for anybody else. And I want you to live for my glory. This morning, perhaps you're here and you're one of those people that have 
had one of those negative self-images and you think, well, I just can't do anything. It's not, it's just not in me or I don't look the right way or, or act the right way. And God is saying to you this morning, I love you and I care for you. And perhaps the only message you need from me, from, to hear from me this morning from God is that God cares about you. Perhaps this morning you have allowed those things in the world to stop your reflection of God to it. And this morning, in just a minute, part of reclaiming your identity is to come and just make a commitment to the Lord that you will begin to reflect Him to His community around you, to the people you work with, to the people that you live among. And that as a member of this church, you'll begin to work towards this church doing that as well. Who are you this morning? Who did you see when you looked in the mirror before you came to church this morning? Is it the person that God intends for you to see? Is it the person that God wants you to be? Or is it the image that the world has created in your mind? And this morning, would you allow God just to work in your heart, to let Him reveal how much He cares? Would you pray with me this morning? And as we're praying here, as we're thinking here, as we're sitting here. As we talked about last week, we can try to find our identity in the relationships that we have. And we can try to find the identity like we talked about this week in the appearance that we have, that the mirror shows back about our self-image. But the truth is that the only way we find our true identity is in Christ. And this morning, if you're here in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you're here and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, then the first step to reclaiming who you truly are is to understand who He is and what He means. How He wants to love you and forgive you of your sins and give you a hope and a future. And this morning, you need to find out about that. Perhaps this morning as you're here, God is speaking to your heart that, Finding your identity means plugging into what we're doing here. That as God has said that each of us has a purpose, that we are needed in this world, that God wants to use us for His glory. That as we see that, what what we have to understand is that God wants us to do that in the midst of a local church. And God may be bringing you here this morning because of the way you fit and the gifts and the abilities you have to begin to work for Him and to shine forth for Him. Maybe this morning you are a follower of His, but you've been looking for a place to call your church home, a place to come and to work and to serve and to be a part of a family. And this morning God's calling you here. During that invitation, would you come? Some of you here just need to pray that God will remind you of who you are in Him. That you are His child. That you are beloved. As all those I am statements from that video declare that you are his child. And this morning, you just need to ask Him to help you accept that more and more. Dear Jesus, Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the opportunity You have given us to be here. 
And Lord, we pray that in just a moment as we sing a song and as we stand in this place, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us an ability to know what you want us to do. And Lord, that we would obey you completely. Lord, we pray that this morning, that your will would be done in this place, that people would come as you call, and Lord, that we would obey whatever you ask. Lord, may people all across this room ask again for you to give them who they truly are, that they wouldn't allow the mirror to tell them or society to tell them or television or radio or magazines, Lord, but that you would allow us to know from you and your word who we are And, Lord, that you would give us that hope in a future you promised. Lord, that you would let us know that our days are ordained. And, Lord, in the midst of that, may we give you the glory for it. Now, Lord, here in this place, we just ask that your will be done. And that we will be passionately devoted to following you. Our Savior, our Lord, and the one that gives us true identity and value. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.